This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Rob Beer. Hello and welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm broadcasting live from our brand new studio in Seattle. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. Launchpad is live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And if you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during the show, give us a call. Our number here is one. 1- 844-WHARTON, that's 1-844-942-7866. Coming up in the second hour of today's show, I'll speak with Tyler Davidson. He's the CEO of Element Data. It's a startup seeking to make machine learning and artificial intelligence more accessible for business users. But now I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest, Patrick Ennis, a scientist turned longtime successful venture capitalist, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, and as I mentioned, you are actually the inaugural guest in this studio. Very excited, and I feel the pressure. Oh, good. I'm glad you feel the pressure, but I think you'll get through it just fine. And as a scientist turned longtime VC, I would just love to hear just a little bit about where did you start out? Well, I started out on Long Island uh, in a middle-class family. And then I went to school and became a scientist, and I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career, uh, but I was very lucky to get a job at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And that was wonderful, but after a while, I felt like I was stuck in the bowels of Bell Labs, and all the people making the decisions were the business people, the marketing people, the finance people, and I wanted to be one of those people that actually had an impact and the Bell Lab scientists and engineers really weren't consulted when it came to strategy. Well, well maybe, maybe we get into that. How did you move on from Long Island? I think you were in a house that was around 1,200 square feet. You had nine people, one bathroom? Yeah, we had seven people, and my grandparents would come out every weekend because they lived in New York City. And uh, they would sleep on the floor in the living room. So we had nine people and one toilet, and I thought that was normal. And this was not a beach house. So when people think <laughs> of Long Island... They often think of the beach houses out in Montauk. It doesn't sound like you're talking about a beach chalet. No, not at all. We had some government assistance. In fact, I remember we would get cheese in the mail from the government, and that always confused me. It's like, I want good schools and safe streets, but why is the government sending us cheese? Now, usually when people say cheese, they mean money, but I suspect you mean actual cheese. This was the surplus uh, government cheese program that they sent to quote-unquote families in need, and I guess we were in need, but not of cheese. And what kind of cheese did you get? Was it pre-sliced, or was it processed, or it was, was it... Well, it's funny you should ask, Rob. It was a big hunk, so it was very impractical. You had to cut it, and then there's all these injuries that ensue when you're trying to cut a 10-pound block of cheese. Okay. So you had the cheese delivered. It sounds like you really had to fight to get into college and move forward. Where'd you go to school and how did that unfold? Yeah, I uh, went to William & Mary in Virginia, which is an excellent state school. And I say state school with emphasis because it was very cost-effective at that point in time. And I also had role models. I was the youngest of five children and everyone went to college. So I don't want to make it out to be harder than it was. I had good role models. I had a great education at William & Mary. It cost me nothing between government aid and my student loans, and I waited tables, and that's how I made my spending money. And what did you study there? I was a math major and a physics major, and I had a minor in classical civilizations, but they wouldn't let you have a minor if you had two majors, and it was kind of a bureaucratic type of thing. So if you search online, you will find out I don't officially have a minor, but I do. So I have always been a fan of math. It was my favorite subject in high school by far. How does, how does one decide that they're going to become a math major in college? Because that was the one time in my life when I started to take advanced math classes in college, not engineering classes, but the theoretical math, where I actually started to feel like I wasn't really that smart. Well, I think I have a similar story, which occurred to me later in my undergraduate career, which is why I did my PhD in physics and not math. But the reason I studied math, it was the path of least resistance. We all have talents and we all have weaknesses. I was horrible with human languages, as you can tell, just with English. 
I took French for six years in grade school and in high school, and I can't speak a word of it. Uh, but math was very easy. So majoring in math was really good because I didn't really have to do any work until my senior year when I started not to understand any of it. And because I didn't have study habits, because I didn't have to study when I was younger, I couldn't get past that barrier. And I said, uh-oh, I better switch to physics, something easy. So that must have been a scary moment, too. Oh, it was scary and very humbling. I remember talking to my professor senior year at William Mary. It was a, uh, a geometry class, non-Euclidean geometry, and I didn't understand any of it. I was worried I was going to fail. And he said, don't worry, you're working hard, you won't fail, but I got a C. No one gets a C. So it was kind of like the, what do they call that, the gentleman's B or the gentleman's C? Yeah. They just didn't really want to flunk you out of school, but you kind of didn't pass the class. Exactly. I had a four-hour going, but uh, I was failing that class, but I got a C for effort. So how did you end up at Bell Labs then? Was that your first gig out of William & Mary? No, I did my PhD in physics at Yale after William & Mary. And I was there for uh, seven years doing research around the world in government labs in the U.S. and Canada and England. And I had followed my brother's footsteps. He also has a Ph.D. in physics from Yale. And we had the same thesis advisor. So when you ended up at Yale and you started traveling around the world, what was that first trip you took? Oh, it, it just blew me away. My first trip was to Canada, and that blew me away. Uh, growing up on Long Island, I was never west of Jersey City before. Uh, and you didn't travel. My first time on an airplane was when I was 22 years old. So just going to Canada uh, to one of their national labs, it was like such an exotic place. And all my friends were laughing. It's like, this is Canada. It's not that much different than the U.S., but to me, it was. And did your thesis advisor say, hey, we need you to go visit this lab in Canada? And then you started to think, oh, I guess I need a passport. Or, oh, how am I going to get there? Well, it's funny. Back then, you did not need a passport to go to Canada, so I didn't have a passport. Uh, my next trip was to England, and it turns out you needed a passport to go to England. And I thought that was such an exotic, strange, faraway place. And when you made that shift from Yale to Bell Labs, how did you connect with Bell Labs? Well, I, I did it again following the footsteps of my brother who left after Yale went to Bell Labs and my thesis advisor was friends with the president of Bell Labs. So I was so lucky to have such advantages like that for which I'm eternally grateful for. So are you kind of having a conversation with your brother and he's like, hey, you should come on over to Bell Labs. It's going to be great. Is that how it unfolded? Actually, it was just that simple. And Bell Labs, as you know, is a famous place. They invented the transistor. They invented the charge couple device, which is the basis behind all digital photography, et cetera, et cetera. Did you ever overlap with Arno Penzias, who ran Bell Labs for a while? Yes, I did. Arno was there, and he's a Nobel laureate, as you know. And then he became a venture capitalist. And I uh, talked to him once at a conference, and a very gracious, very wonderful gentleman. So for people that aren't familiar with Arno, Arno ran Bell Labs for many years, but he was credited as one of the people who confirmed the Big Bang Theory because I think as I heard it, they were listening to some stuff on radios and they couldn't figure out what this background noise was and they figured out it was actually the leftover noise from the creation of the universe. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And it was across the street from the building where I was working. Uh, of course, it was before my time. Uh, but they found this noise and they couldn't get rid of it. They tried everything. They thought it was bird droppings in the microwave antenna. Uh, but when they cleaned out the bird droppings, they still <laughs> heard the noise. And they thought they were crazy. So they drove up uh, the Jersey Turnpike. Uh, they stopped at Princeton and they asked the smart people at Princeton what's going on. And some of them said, you know, this may be the background radiation from the origin of the universe. So what do you actually do in a day at Bell Labs? How does that work? Did you... So it sounds silly, but did you move to New Jersey and rent an apartment there? And what does a day look like when you're working as a scientist at Bell Labs? Yeah, I better pick a good day. Otherwise, everyone's going to fall asleep. But I will say the funny part is when I moved to Bell Labs, I did get in my car from New Haven and I drove the two hours to New Jersey. And when I submitted my moving expense report, I submitted, you know, 100 miles at 10 cents a mile for gasoline. And my boss said, hey, you've got a relocation package up for $10,000, which is a lot of money now, was a lot of money in 92. And I said, what do you mean? I just drove in my car. He's like, well, don't you have anything to move? It's like, I'm a student. I've, <laughs> I've got a suitcase. So yes, yeah, so I moved there and I shaved my beard, cut my hair, and I bought some ties and shirts and pretended I was a corporate person. So then what happened? So what's a typical day? So it's a, a lot of computer work. You spend a lot of your day in front of a terminal, and this was the old days. It was those old sun stations that looked like a pizza box. 
we wrote requirements for the uh, Bell System engineering requirements. Uh, we did software development. It's a lot of meetings. It may sound boring, but it's meetings about really interesting stuff. And what were some of the topics that you worked on? Uh, speech recognition was one of my first projects in 1992. Uh, and now speech recognition is ubiquitous. Computers and cell phones understand what you say. Uh, here it was the early days of the field, and we were developing products that could actually tell what you were speaking about. So is this the same type of stuff that goes into Google Assistant and Alexa and things like that, similar Absolute. technologies? Absolutely. A lot of the groundbreaking work was done by a scientist named Larry Rabiner at Bell Labs, who later went to Rutgers. And lots of buzzwords like hidden Markov modeling and dynamic template warping, which 0.1% of those people listening you know, may know about. But uh, that stuff was 30 years ago, and now we're reaping the benefits of that today with the products. Now, there was a point where... Speech recognition seemed to reach a tipping point where it went from being pretty good, but you couldn't really rely on it. And then it seemed like over the course of a year, it just became great. What, what happened? Well, I think a lot happened with the fundamental algorithms, but more importantly, the databases improved in terms of the modeling of the human speech. When we were first working on it in Bell Labs, we made the mistake of building our database just with people from New Jersey. And back then, I used to talk like this. So we had, you know, 4,000 people. So it worked great if you're from Jersey City, but it didn't work good for most of humanity. So there's a lot of thought to how do you build a generic human speech model that could accommodate female voices, male voices, folks from all over the world with different accents. And did you realize that at the time? No, of course not. That's why everyone made fun of me. <laughs> so you worked on stuff like speech recognition, different projects like that. And I mm -hmm. think you said you were there for about eight years. Yeah, roughly. actually, I was at Bell Labs for six years. Six years. What was the impetus to go back to business school and start thinking about this career shift? Yeah, uh, a lot of it was when I was at Bell Labs, I was frustrated that it seemed like people that were making the decisions were all the marketing people and product management and finance people. And I said, wait a minute, us Bell Labs people, some of us are interested in making strategic decisions. So I figured if you can't beat them, join them. And Bell Labs had this wonderful program where they would pay for your MBA. Uh, so that's when I went to Wharton to get my MBA while I was working full-time at Bell Labs. So it was a slog. You're literally working all the time. But I'm so thankful because I didn't have to pay for it. I was sponsored by the company. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Patrick Ennis. He's a scientist turned longtime venture capitalist, currently with Intellectual Ventures. So you went to Wharton, and what was the biggest surprise for you after having been at Bell Labs for six years, being with a bunch of hungry, aggressive, fun MBA students. It was realizing how much was out there and how much of an impact I could make beyond a big corporation. So meeting all these folks in my class that were on Wall Street, that were doing startups, that were based in California, I just learned that there's so many other career paths than just staying in one big company for your whole life. And how did you learn about venture capital? You mentioned a little bit about Arno Penzias, who used to run Bell Labs, making the transition over to New Enterprise Associates. How, how did you find out more about this? Well, I was talking to a lot of my classmates that I was frustrated and I didn't want to build a career just in a giant company. So one of them in particular told me about venture capital. And my first question is, I've never heard of those two words, you know, because that wasn't the, the area that I was familiar with. So he explained it. I said, wow, that's great. I'd love to do it. How do I get a job in venture capital? And he said, well, it's really hard. You either have to be an experienced entrepreneur, and that's not me. You have to have a lot of money and be an investor. That's not me. You've got to know a whole bunch of people in Boston or in Silicon Valley and send letters to 800 firms. And none of that seemed to make sense. So I forgot about it. And then about a month later, another person at Wharton said, hey, there's something called the Kaufman Fellows Program. You only have to fill out one application. And they will promulgate that to many venture firms. So that's how I was lucky enough to get into the venture industry. So it's through the Kaufman Fellowship, which actually yes. I went through two years before you did. That's right. And it was a lot of interviews and it was a lot of people to talk to, an application process. But it was how I ended up in venture capital 23 years ago over at New Enterprise Associates. So you ended up matching up with Arch and... Where was Arch located at the time, and where did you move to? 
So Arch had a handful of offices. They were originally based in Chicago, uh, but a very active office at the time was in Seattle. And that's where I moved to, to work with my mentor, Bob Nelson. And how'd that conversation unfold? How did you find out that you were going to Seattle? Well, it unfolded over three days uh, because, as you recall, we had to go to Kansas City for a three-day matching event. And you're literally spending morning, noon, and night talking to 20 different venture capital firms. Yeah, so this finalist process that you're talking about, you go through a series of interviews and you have an application and then you're invited as a finalist to a hotel in Kansas City of all places. I think it was the Hyatt Regency or something like that. That's correct. And it's this big bland box in Kansas City, Missouri, and you go there for three days and you just have a whole series of interviews. And how many finalists did you have at the time? So that year, there were 27 finalists, and there were nine slots available. So it was a little awkward because he wanted to be friends with everybody, but everyone knew of the 27, there were only going to be nine going home with the job. Sounds like The Apprentice or The Bachelor or Survivor over the course of three days. And And you don't have to be a math major to know that your chances are one in three. Uh, Oh, that's true. One in three. So you found out at the end of this and you matched with Arch and it was on the third day when you were doing this in Kansas City that you found out, oh, guess what? We need you in Seattle. That's correct. And then the next day I went to Bell Labs and told them I was resigning. So why Seattle? At the, well, a couple of reasons. One, we love Seattle. Um, I had some close friends at Microsoft, so I'd been here several times uh, visiting and on holiday Uh, Two, I really wanted to be on the West Coast where so much of the tech and entrepreneurial activity was happening. And also a lot of the growth in Asia uh, was driving a lot of the growth in the West Coast. And frankly, I thought Seattle was just a better gateway to Asia and was less developed than Silicon Valley at that time. So I thought it would be a, a good chance to get in on the ground floor when Seattle was just beginning to take off. So you moved out here and it was your first gig in venture capital. And how did you learn the ropes? Well, it was hard. I was lucky I had a good You were a scientist. You were literally a scientist. Yeah, and plus people expect you to know a lot about science but not a lot about business and perhaps not even think you have a lot of common sense. So you're really starting from the ground floor where you've got to to learn to be credible in all those areas. So how'd you do it? Well, you know, I like to say hard work, but lots of people work hard. Um, There's a lot of hard work and a lot of support. And I was just thrown in the deep end. Uh, On my very first day, my mentor said, look, you're going to shadow me and I'm going to take you to every meeting. And your job is to not say anything, to take a lot of notes. (laughs) Keep your mouth shut, son. And and that's harder to do than you might think. Um, But he said, just keep your mouth shut, take a lot of notes, come up with a lot of good questions and we can talk later. So I was able to go to all these meetings that normally a junior person wouldn't get to go to because I earned my place by keeping my mouth shut. And what was the name of your mentor? Uh, Robert Nelson, Bob Nelson. He's one of the most famous biotech venture capitalists. That nobody, not many people have heard of. That's right. (laughs) The the ratio of his success to fame is probably the highest of about any venture investor that I have ever heard of. Yeah, I think he's up to 28 IPOs, most of which he was involved in the founding of those companies. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before the show. I think he had three of the companies he invested in go public in a quarter. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Where a lot of people get that in a career. A lot of firms are thrilled if they have that over the course of a year. That's right. So he taught you a lot, and it started with be quiet, listen, let's talk afterwards. And it's it's interesting when you think about a lot of people coming into new industries, they come in and it's almost like they want to contribute right away as opposed to listen and learn the ropes. Yeah, that's so key. Uh, You really turn people off when you show up as the new person and pretend that you know more than they do, especially in an industry that's very complex and there's no no, uh, rule book for how to behave. So you really have to learn it by doing it. And it's best to spend the first year or two just doing a lot of listening and thinking. I remember that during my first year in particular at NEA, going into board meetings and watching stuff. And some of it looked really straightforward, but then you might go in and sit in a board meeting with a company that's not working out and you had some people that were possibly not the best investors or executives and you'd see some wild stuff happen. Yeah. I mean, you go to enough meetings, you see everything. Um, When companies are having trouble or when you have to make executive changes, emotions come into play. 
sometimes things get potentially violent, and it's uh, it's amazing the things that you see in those types of meetings. Potentially violent? Yes, that's right. If you have to remove someone from an executive position, they're that often, can get a little uncomfortable. They're often Type A people, and they're very emotional. And um, and during the first year or so that you're in the industry, you're probably just as happy that you've been asked to be quiet. Yeah, because this was 21 years ago, and I looked very young. I would think I was in my early 30s, but I looked like I was 18. So if I was talking to a senior CEO, he or she, they were not taking me seriously. Well, it's an interesting industry because it is incredibly reputation-based. And learning as much as you can by watching and asking questions during the first year or two, I think, is incredibly important because you could do things as a new investor that people will never forget. And it's really hard to recover from a, a negative reputation in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you really want to keep a low profile in the beginning. And, you know, the joke is a, a lot of new people coming into the industry, ask them what did they major in in college. And sometimes you wonder, it seems like they majored in confidence because that's all they have. They're so brash and confident, but you don't really know what's beneath that. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Patrick Ennis, who is a scientist-turned-venture capitalist who's been in the industry for roughly 20 years. So at some point, you emerged from the shadows, so to speak, in the menteeship, and you started to take board seats and take a more active role. What was that like? Well, it's very challenging in the beginning because the training wheels are off. So you're no longer just a quote-unquote board observer. You're actually the board member. And there's legal duties, fiduciary duties, and you've got responsibility to the company. If the company fails, there's a lot of pressure because people lose their jobs. And good venture capitalists take that seriously. It's not just that the company fails and you lose your money. It's that these are people that had health plans and, and career plans, and it's all gone. So it's a tremendous amount of pressure. Well, it's interesting. One of the things you learn early on when you join a board of directors is that even though you're, quote, representing your investment in the company, once you join a board of directors, you actually have a fiduciary obligation to all shareholders of the company. So whether it's your investment interests or prior investors' interests or the common shareholders, the employees of the company, it's a very, very real responsibility that you have. Yeah, and board members forget that all the time. They'll speak with their investor hat on, and they'll forget that they need to put their board hat on. And that can open people up to liability if you do that too often. So what was your favorite board that oh. you're not on anymore? We'll say something that's in the past. I'm sure all your very favorites are the ones you're on right now. That's like saying which of your children are your favorite, you know, but you're making me pick. Uh, so I will give you an answer. Maybe fun. What was the most fun? <laughs> so I think my favorite board uh, was a company called Impinge, which is here in Seattle. They're now a public company. I haven't been on their board for 10 years. Uh, they're the uh, world leader in RFID, um, which enables the Internet of Things. And that was my favorite board because it was my first board. And I joined it here in Seattle 20 years ago with one of my original mentors, uh, Tom Alberg, who was the uh, founder of uh, Madrona Venture Group. How many people were in the company at the time? Uh, well, none. It was a, a seed stage company. Wow. And the co-founders were uh, Carver Mead, who's a very famous uh, gentleman, a Caltech professor, uh, and co-founded 22 companies. And Chris Diorio, who at the time was a professor at the University of Washington. So they were the first two employees, and uh, we started hiring from there. So when you say seed stage, first two employees, no office, where did you first meet them? It was just through a referral. Seattle's a very small town. Uh, we knew the uh, folks at the University of Washington Computer Science Department, a gentleman named Ed Lazowska, who's a wonderful person. And he introduced us uh, to Chris Diorio. And where did you have your first meeting with him? Oh, that's a great question. We had a lunch meeting at a restaurant near the University of Washington. Do you remember which one by chance? No, I don't, unfortunately. Okay. So you guys are basically, they're sketching it out on the proverbial napkin near UW. That's right. They had a PowerPoint and they had some academic results from Caltech and from the University of Washington. So when they come in and they talk to you about what they're doing, and it's a really early stage, how does the conversation go with your partners when you were at Arch? about whether to invest or not. The, the entrepreneurs have left the room or they've left the restaurant in this case. What, what do you talk about? Well, typically venture capitalists talk about team, market, and technology when you're evaluating an opportunity. 
But when you're doing really seed stage deals that have powerful core technologies, you often don't know what the market will be. You don't know what the application will be. So you focus more on the team. Are they truly great and famous and experienced and the power of the technology? And then you just write on a whiteboard a handful of applications that might result from the application of the technology. And it sounds like you're doing that because you're trying to figure out, can this be a really big company? That's right. Is it Because ultimately, everyone wants to invest in a company that has a chance to become a billion-dollar public company if everything goes right. So you invested. Do you remember how much you invested at the time? Yes, it was actually a pretty large A round for the time. Uh, we did. Uh, we put in seven point five million dollars, which was a lot of money. At oh, that so time. you didn't mess around? Yeah, we went all in. It was uh, the boom was in full swing. This was the late nineties. Uh, there was competition uh, for the best startups, and big deals were happening. And do you remember where they built their first office? Uh, yeah, it was a small office near the University of Washington. And when people think of a startup and what it looks like. What does it look like when you drive up to it? Does it look like a dentist's office? Does it look like a shopping mall? Does it look like a big professional space? Yeah, it's not as exciting as you may think. It, it just looks like it's a shopping mall or a boring office because for startups, cash is the most important thing and you don't want to waste it on fancy corporate office space. So what was the rest of the story with it? So you put the seven to eight million into the company and they grew. At what point did they go public? So they went public. It took them more than 15 years. And there's a lesson there is great startups often take longer than you think, uh, but it's worth the wait. And uh, the reward is there if you just keep building the business. If 15 years. Yeah. That's, okay. That's a long so wait. They, so they raised the money in, was it 99? Yeah. I think that the big round I'm talking about, I think was uh, the end of 2000. The end of 2000. So it was just as that huge boom was tailing off. And why did it take so long? Well, the RFID market uh, took longer than people thought, and this is tracking goods uh, in warehouses and in consumer locations. So I think the market just took a little bit longer than everyone had hoped. Yeah, because you need things like readers to be able to tell they're there, all the infrastructure that you needed. So the promise was there and people could think about it, but they didn't have all the pieces right. to but put they, it together. But they succeeded because of good management, and they raised money when they needed it, and they didn't waste money when they didn't need to spend it. So what happens eight years into a journey like that? Do people start to wonder if it's going to work out? Oh, I think many people do because eight years is a, is a long time. But you just have to understand when you're building startup companies, not all of them go public in three to seven years. And in fact, some of the biggest successes take longer than that. So you just have to stay calm and realize that you're building many companies and there's different paths to success. Did they start making revenue in that time frame? They had some revenue, but not a lot. I mean, there's some contract revenue and some government grants, but no, there wasn't a lot of revenue. So what, at what point did you realize that it's really going to work out? You're eight years in, you want to stay the course. But there's probably some point at which you start to say, hey, this is working out. And hey, I think this company could actually go public. I think everyone had different views on that. But I felt very optimistic about it from the beginning uh, because it was obvious that this technology was going to get in the market eventually. And Impinge was the technology and the product leader. And they were having great discussions with every big corporation in the world, essentially, that said, look, once the price points get to a certain level, we will deploy it. And from a technology perspective, we could map out the price points, and we knew it was going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So we need to take a short break. I'm going to continue my conversation with longtime venture capitalist Patrick Ennis. When we're back, we're going to talk a bit about what he's been up to since Arch and what's going on in the Seattle technology scene. I'm Rob Conneberry, founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conneybeer, a founder and managing director of Shasta Ventures, broadcasting live from Seattle. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Patrick Ennis, a scientist turned longtime venture capitalist, who's talking about one of his favorite companies over time, a company that took 15 years from seed investment to IPO called Impinge. And this is while he was at Arch Venture Partners. 
And since then, he moved on to a pretty well-known firm called Intellectual Ventures. Could you talk a bit about what, what is Intellectual Ventures? So Intellectual Ventures is a, a series of groups that specializes in invention and in startups and in intellectual property. And at IV, they also have a very uh, well-stocked and large lab uh, on the outskirts of Seattle that's inventing the future, both for um, the developing world and also for uh, startups here in the United States. And when you go by the lab in Seattle, you drive by it. It's on Interstate 90. It's right next to Interstate 90 between downtown Seattle and heading to the mountains and Microsoft. And there's that big round ball on a stick. What is that? It's, it's shiny. You can see your car. Your car looks really short when you drive by it. What, what is that thing? Well, Rob, it's artwork. And more specifically, it's a representation of a Van de Graaff nuclear accelerator. Okay. So it is definitely techie art humor. That's right. And those machines in the real world can produce millions of volts, where the voltage in your wall is about 100 volts. This can do millions of volts. That's pretty crazy. That's right. So you go into the doorway at IV, which I think is kind of a funny abbreviation for it, but intellectual ventures. And what do you see when you go inside? Because it's kind of like going into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. There's all this interesting stuff going on in there. What are a few of the things you see if you walk around inside? That's right. Well, the, the first thing you'll see on your left is a uh, plastic version of a human skeleton. And uh, that's just to show that we do a lot of work in biology. Uh, you will also note on the ceiling, there's a digital representation of a portion of Newton's Principia, which was one of Newton's great bodies of work in physics and math. And when you think about Newton, Newton was a guy that figured out acceleration and he kind of created calculus, didn't he? Yeah, he created calculus and he figured out gravity and he had Newton's three laws and he was one of the most consequential thinkers that humanity has ever produced. So I'm guessing you, as a physicist, must be a fan of Newton. Yes, how could you not be? Okay, so there's the Newton stuff, but then there's also a pizza oven upstairs. Why is there a pizza oven upstairs on the second floor? Yeah, that's right. Well, the uh, founder of Intellectual Ventures, uh, Nathan Mirvold, is a very well-known scientist, but he's also a very well-known chef, and he's written a series of uh, wonderful books on cooking and food and uh, his world-class kitchen is uh, there at the facility. And he basically brought science and engineering techniques to cuisine, as I understand it. That's right, because as you saw on the tour, there's a combination of things in the kitchen, some stuff that you recognize from your home kitchen, some things that you'll find in a restaurant kitchen, some things you'll see in a factory or industrial kitchen, and some things you'll see in a biology or a chemistry lab, such as a rotary evaporator or a centrifuge. And what do you make with that kind of stuff? You just make really cool food. And oftentimes what you make looks like something different than what it actually is. And that's part of the fun. So are you able to talk about the other end of the spectrum, what you can see when you look out of the kitchen onto the first floor? Sure. There's um, uh, many startups that Intellectual Ventures has produced. And uh, some of them rent uh, space uh, from Intellectual Ventures. And one of the uh, more exciting companies that Intellectual Ventures has produced is called TerraPower, and they're working on a next-generation, safe, and affordable nuclear power, and they've been in the news a lot over the years. So they're working on this on the first floor right below the kitchen. Yeah, the juxtaposition is really, really fascinating, and it's the research lab, so it's not a running nuclear reactor. There's no radiation there, of course, uh, but they're doing design work, and it points to the interdisciplinary nature of doing startups is you can't really specialize in one field. All fields influence the others. And the better you become in one field, the more creative you'll become in another. Well, it's really interesting when you think about this, the kitchen is a great analogy for cooking up startups, so to speak. And it's about bringing different disciplines together. So when you think about the gig economy, you think about Uber and Lyft, obviously the cars have been around for a long time. Drivers have been around for a long time. But you had this intersection with the smartphone that everybody was starting to use together with locations and satellites that could broadcast location and figure this out. How does intellectual ventures work to bring these ideas together? How do you, how do you make that happen or, or help it happen? Yeah, you can absolutely help it happen. Um, you need to bring together very creative people in appropriately sized groups. 
If you look at the right size group, it's not 20 people and it's not 2,000. It's typically about 100 or so. If you get any bigger than that, not everyone knows everyone. If you get any smaller than that, you can't cover all the fields. And then you can't put really strong constraints on people because the interesting thing happens at the margins as technologies become more interdisciplinary and as markets uh, converge. So if somebody was listening right now and they wanted to become a part of this, how does somebody become a part of the whole intellectual ventures lab ecosystem? Well, the traditional way and the main way is to become a scientist, and that typically involves getting a PhD or PhD equivalent. Uh, Many great inventors and scientists actually don't have formal education, but in general, it improves your odds to go the traditional route, get a PhD and publish and become an expert in something. The other side of it is to become an entrepreneur, because when you're building businesses, you don't just need technology, you need people uh, who can bring those technologies to life. So it sounds like if you're going down the entrepreneurial route, you should at least be conversant in different areas of technology so you know the questions to ask and an idea of how it works. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the best technology CEOs don't actually have deep technology understanding, but what they have is a love of technology and appreciation of it and a respect for it and a desire to learn more and more, but they don't actually have to be formally trained or be the world's expert in that technology. So how did it come about at the beginning? And who are some of the founding figures around intellectual ventures for people that aren't familiar with it? Yeah. So the two original founders were Nathan Mirvold and Edward Jung, And they were uh, key Microsoft employees uh, from early on in the days of Microsoft. And when they left Microsoft in the 2001 timeframe, they wound up forming intellectual ventures uh, to focus on innovation, intellectual property, invention, and the early part of the company creation process. And how did they find Patrick Ennis? Well, when I was at Arch, one of my partners... um, used to be at Microsoft and knew Edward Jung. And one day he said, you know, you should get to meet this guy, Edward. He's really, really smart. And I said, well, hey, I'll meet with anyone. And especially if they're smart, then I'll especially meet with them. So we just met in 2003. Did he connect you guys by email? Yeah, it was, you know, the old Did you say, nice to e-meet you? It was one of those. It was like, hey, why don't don't you guys get together? And we just started meeting on a regular basis and emailing on a regular basis. And about who, tech who made the first move, so to speak? So who suggested, let's get together? Was it breakfast? Was it lunch? Was it coffee? Was it uh, a long run somewhere? Yeah, well, Edward Jung always uh, jokes that I was his longest recruit. I think it took him five or six years uh, for me to finally jump in because uh, I joined Intellectual Ventures in early 2008. I think it was January 2008. And uh, the way it finally happened is uh, we're both tech geeks and we email all the time. But somewhat ironically, he sent me a handwritten Christmas card in 2007. Handwritten. Oh, it sounds like that's what got you over the the hump, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it was so ironic. After thousands of emails being shared through the years, I get a handwritten Christmas card and it was very kind. It's like, we've talked about this for a while. We have this new fund up and running. I've kept the position open for you, but I need to know soon. And in that minute, it's like, wow, now is the time. Time to decide. That's great. Now, did you keep the card? Oh, absolutely. You did? I have it. I and, and out of curiosity, did he, did he write the address also? And did he also write the return address? Because I feel like when I write a really personal note, I don't want to put the little sticker on it. That has my name. That's what I say for the bills for PG&E. Yeah, let's just say it was, it was personal, and it wasn't one of those things that you could tell that someone's assistant sent out, or it wasn't computer-generated text. You know, It was a good old-fashioned uh, fountain It's actually a really interesting lesson in there when you think about it. If something means enough to you, especially when you're thinking about working with somebody really matters. Putting in that time, that effort, that thoughtfulness. Yeah, because in a strange way, in today's LinkedIn world where everyone's connected to everyone, that really means no one's connected to anybody because there's no information content in the fact that you're a Facebook friend. So in a strange way, old-fashioned face-to-face relationships are more valuable and more important than ever. So what was the first day like? You finally said yes. You brought in the card. You put it on your desk. What, what What does a first day at Intellectual Ventures look like? Well, you show up, and I realized I had to dust off skills um, that had been in hibernation for some time. At Bell Labs, I had managed people and managed groups and projects. In venture capital, you don't really do a lot of that. You do deals, and you sit on boards, and you think about technology, but you're not actually the one on the sharp end. You're not actually the one who's on the hook for delivering products. 
so the first thing I had to do was build a big team. And in that first year, uh, built up about 40 folks. Holy cow. What yeah. kind of people? Uh, a variety, mostly technical, uh, a lot of PhDs and some former venture capitalists, some former entrepreneurs. And as I joked with our lead recruiter, um, the first 12 were easy because I hired all of my friends. Uh, and then I ran out of friends. I only had 12 friends. So then the recruiter said, we're going to have to go back to old-fashioned recruiting. And were they all people here from the Seattle area? Uh, some were from Seattle. Some moved here to Seattle, which I viewed as, uh, you know, as flattered that they would do that. It also added a lot of pressure. Uh, but I also helped build up teams across Asia. That was part of my job was to go around Asia and build up technical teams in our Singapore office and our office in China, Korea, et cetera. So you were doing a lot of traveling. Yeah, a huge amount. I was, you know, one of those people that uh, everyone recognizes in the airport. Well, we were, we were talking about this in the first half of the show, and I want to get into this a little bit. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Patrick Ennis. So you started to travel a lot. In the first half of the show, you were talking about how by the time you went to college, you had never left the country at all. In fact, it sounds like you hadn't gone very far from New York. What really precipitated all the travel that you've done? Because you've done a ton. Yeah, I've, I've been to uh, 31 countries on business. Um, and many countries, I've been to Korea more than 80 times. I've been to China more than 50. And people say, oh, that must be exciting. It's like, yeah, the first seven times it's exciting. But then the next 53, not so exciting. It's just another Hyatt hotel. Uh, but what precipitated it was, frankly, the tech industry has become global. It was always global, but it's even more global now. And the center of gravity is moving. Silicon Valley is still the single coolest place. If you only have an hour to spend anywhere in the world, sure, spend it in the valley. But I remember being in a coffee shop. It was a Starbucks, in fact, in Shanghai. This was 10 years ago. So imagine today what it's like. And it was the neighborhood of where Tongji and Fudan University were, and all the students were on their laptops writing business plans. It reminded me of Silicon Valley decades ago. And in the ensuing 10 years, China, Singapore, Korea have just become more and more entrepreneurial hubs. And what precipitated it initially? So precipitated it was uh, Edward Jung, the co-founder of Intellectual Ventures, um, had a very strong belief and strategy for expansion into Asia. And so he spearheaded that business plan, and I worked with him and the other teams to build that up. So let me guess. He came along, and you went along, and he said, I'd like you to not talk. <laughs> did you have that first, that first trip? I guess I'm exaggerating a little bit, but did it feel a bit like that where you go along the first time and you're thinking, boy, this is going to be interesting? Yeah, a, a little bit. Not quite as bad because I was 10 years older and 10 years more experienced and I had more relevant experience. But doing business in Asia is very different than doing business in the U.S., especially in some countries like Japan and Korea, where you really need to be quiet. And silence is okay in a meeting. But in the U.S., especially even in New York, where I'm from, you're trained to fill the silence and just to talk, 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 talk. And that's viewed as rude. And so I learned to become a better listener, although you may not tell that from this conversation. But uh, Edward taught me to become a better listener, which I think has helped me do business in Asia. Did he talk to you about that pretty explicitly? Oh, absolutely. It's because over and over again, you see Americans going over to Tokyo, for example, and really blowing it. Just being a loud mouth, fulfilling the stereotype of a typical know-it-all American instead of being polite and sitting there and listening, asking the other side what they want, and then just keeping your mouth shut and let there be silence. So you're on this first flight. Did you fly with Edward? Uh, yes, I have uh, many times, and also I've flown with uh, Nathan a couple of times also. Okay, and with Edward, did you fly commercial? Uh, yes, we, we do fly commercial to uh, make the best use of, uh, of funds, but I have been fortunate enough to tag along on some private planes, and that's a very efficient experience. So when you're flying commercial on the way over and you're sitting on the plane, what do you talk about? Does he start to prep you for this and tell you about the people that you're going to be meeting with? I'm just thinking about the very first time. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's really just technology because if your advantage is technology, if you're a technology expert, you never want to lose that edge. There's so many people that are scientists that go into business and then they lose the edge. But there's plenty of Harvard MBAs out there that are going to be better at do, being a Harvard MBA than you are, whether you're Wharton or Harvard. 
But if your core competency is being a tech expert, you don't want to lose that. So this way, when we go over to those meetings, and at the time we were actually going over to Japan, meeting with some key corporates, we wanted to make sure that they knew they were meeting with people that really understood the technology roadmap for their industry as opposed to just financial models. So it sounds like it's go with what you're strong at that differentiates you. And at the same time, if you were helping them with the roadmap or think about their roadmap, sounds like you had to do a lot of research before you went. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And fortunately, it's relatively easy today because so much is available um, online. It's not like the old days where only a few people had the information. But you really want to understand the products that are in the market today, but also the research that's happening in the laboratories, because that's really where your value comes from. That's called predicting the future. And it's really hard to do, but you only have to uh, be right a couple times. So for the last segment of the show here, I'd love to shift gears and talk about Seattle and the Seattle tech ecosystem. And I think one of the first tech companies up here was arguably Boeing, creating the iconic 747 and more infamously recently, the 737. And clearly you had Microsoft come along and then Amazon, but maybe just talk a bit about what is the tech ecosystem like here and how is it different than any other part of the country? Yeah, it, it's phenomenal, actually. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, in a strange way, Seattle is much more international and open-minded and outward-looking than Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley can be kind of insular because there's so much there. You don't need to know what's going on. But these days, if that's your attitude, you'll miss the things that are happening in Tonji University in Shanghai. I'm reminded of the old New Yorker cartoon where on the front cover of the New Yorker magazine, it showed Manhattan, and then the rest of the world was in the distance. And to me, the Valley's kind of like that. But Seattle was always relatively small, so they were forced to incorporate ideas from outside. So Boeing started here, and then you listed Microsoft. But one thing people forget is the world's medical ultrasound industry got its start in Seattle out of some research from the University of Washington and companies that were built here. So... University of Washington is responsible for everybody finding out whether they have a boy or girl coming. Absolutely. And that's no exaggeration. Look, there are lots of other people involved. I don't mean to take that away. But the University of Washington and Seattle had a pivotal role in the development of the worldwide medical ultrasound industry. And no one talks about that because we have other important things to talk about, whether it's Microsoft, of course, Amazon really changed this area. And then the startup ecosystem really became large. Uh, we're now here in Seattle, kind of the Silicon Valley of global health because of the Gates Foundation and uh, other, uh, other foundations that focus on global health. So it's very much a diversified tech economy these days. Well, you mentioned the Gates Foundation. Clearly, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, together with Paul Allen, created a lot of what's happened here, a lot of the foundational elements. But what has happened since Microsoft And you had mentioned before the show that he has active engagement with intellectual ventures Mm -hmm. and the Gates Foundation. What are some of the initiatives that are powering a lot of that in Seattle? Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, Bill Gates is very involved, not just with the foundation, but still with Microsoft, but also with intellectual ventures and with a lot of the startups that they uh, work on. And, um, you know, one of the recent startups that um, was spun out of intellectual ventures is called Zenova. And that's an open innovation international market network that is connecting entrepreneurs around the world. And that's based here in Seattle. And they're a relatively small company at this time. But it's another example of once you have initial success in geography, all the great people uh, eventually spin out and do other things. And it becomes a self-sustaining type of system. And what other drivers do you see in the Seattle ecosystem like that? So I think, obviously, um, the University of Washington is always going to be uh, a real center. If you look at the amount of federal research funding, uh, University of Washington often is the most in the world, uh, more than MIT, more than other schools. Um, You'll always see people spinning out of Amazon or Microsoft. There is entrepreneurial clusters elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Hanford National uh, Laboratories here in Washington State, they got their start during World War II doing a lot of the important work. Uh, and they're a huge national lab. So there's technology being developed Where, where is Hanford, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's in Hanford. <laughs> okay. I'm <laughs> guessing it's pretty far east. Yeah, I'm w- guessing it's about a two- or three-hour drive from here. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's near Richland. You drive over the mountains, and you'll be there in about three hours. I'm guessing they used it to help develop weapons. Yeah, there was a long there, time ago, World some War of that, II. and there's Pacific Northwest Labs. Um, so there's a great research base, and what's really key these days is there's a great entrepreneurial base. So when you're recruiting, 
out into Seattle. In the old days, it was hard because they would say, well, my, my partner or my spouse, he or she may have trouble finding a job. But now there's, it's such a diverse economy. Usually uh, two people can get a job when they move here. And what about Amazon? Yeah, it's an amazing story um, over the years. Uh, there's so many folks here and so many folks that have been successful and then have left to start their own companies. And they're a real driver of the local economy. And, of course, they've been in the news a lot lately with the search for their new uh, second headquarters. So they're not going to build it in Hanford? Yeah, that they, I don't think Hanford submitted a bid, uh, as wonderful as that area is. So, so what, one of the things that people have talked about with Seattle is Microsoft built this great foundation, but it wasn't the source of as many spin-outs as you might have expected. When I say spin-outs, I mean people leaving to do new things. Why is there that perception? You know, I don't know because I think it's a misperception. You know, there are lots of examples and you could talk about Expedia and uh, many others. And if you look at all of the successful startups in the Seattle area over the last 10 years, there's always a key person on the team that spent time at Microsoft. So I don't have the data in front of me, but I, I would go out on a limb and say that's a misperception. And when you take a look at Amazon, do you expect that you'll see some of the similar things, people leaving at some point to do new things? Oh, you're absolutely seeing that. Uh, part of it is the expertise that you gain at a successful company. And frankly, some of it is the financial independence you get, which gives you the ability uh, to take that risk. The other thing Seattle's been great at is recruiting people from out of the region. And I've done a lot of that. And I always mention three things. I say, look, the taxes are lower than California, the traffic is less, and the houses are cheaper. And people that grew up in Seattle don't agree with me on that, but if you compare it to well, California. Well, it's changing for the people here because of the people moving in because of all these attractive reasons. Yeah, it's, really. go it's going up. So Seattle is not as cheap as it used to be. The taxes aren't as low and the traffic is getting worse, but it's still better than Boston or Manhattan or Silicon Valley. Do you plan to stay here for a while? Been here 21 years, so that's your answer. Okay, so you're here to stay. Yeah, I love the region. It's a very dynamic, uh, diverse area, and the gateway to Asia is really important. I think people don't talk about that enough. We've got a minute here, but if somebody was thinking about coming into technology in Seattle, what advice would you give them? I would say just do a lot of networking up front. It's a, it's a very open community. People love to talk to newcomers and outsiders and give them an advice as to companies that they should talk to. So open up LinkedIn, figure out who you know in common, ask friends for introductions, jump on the phone with people, jump on a plane, come out here, see what's going on. Absolutely. You'd be surprised. People will take meetings, uh, people of all levels. And what's your number one piece of advice for an entrepreneur from the Bay Area thinking about coming up here? I think it's get rid of the valley-itis a little bit. A lot of folks coming up from the valley are a little bit cocky and a little bit dismissive of uh, Seattle. Well, great. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. And people that are interested in following you, where can they find you online? I think the easiest way is on my LinkedIn, uh, Patrick Ennis, uh, Seattle. Okay, great. Well, Patrick, thanks again. So we're going to take a short break. Just ahead, I'll speak with Tyler Davidson. He's the CEO of Element Data. He, it's a global artificial intelligence products and software company. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM Channel 132. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 